Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Mike. Lauren. If you had to sum up all of the tech news of 2022 in one word, what would it be? In one word? I, I'll give you a phrase. Elon Musk. Oh, <laughs> really? Is that like, it's like a proper noun. Yeah. It's like an improper noun. I mean, he looms large. <sighs> yeah. What about you? I went with a dictionary word. So I chose inauspicious. 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 That's dark. Look it up. It is dark. <laughs> it is, but it's been a weird year. It has been a very strange year. I mean, all years are strange, but I think this year is kind of off the charts. We should talk about it. Let's do it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. And I'm Michael Calori. I'm a senior editor at Wired. This is our last Gadget Lab episode of the year. Now, in the past, we would usually publish a rerun episode around this time of year. But we heard that you all actually really like listening to Gadget Lab in December, maybe because you're looking for a little escape from the family <laughs> or you're traveling and you need some pods for the long ride. So we're here taping this in mid-December and hoping you will find a little joy in this episode. So Mike and I have been doing a lot of reflecting and some debating over the biggest tech news of 2022. As journalists, we're often covering the news, but a big part of the job is also being an avid news consumer. And we've both been totally steeped in all things Metaverse, Web3, Zuck, Apple, Twitter, SBF. Elon. Elon Musk. <laughs> Mike, I'm just going to get straight to it. 
What do you think was the biggest tech news story of 2022? Well, when we prepared for this episode, we compiled our own lists Mm -hmm. of the things that we wanted to talk about. And then we shared our lists with each other. And I have something that I want to talk about. But I think the thing that you want to talk about is more important. So we should talk about that first. And that's Twilon. Twilon. Mr. Twilon. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you pretty much hinted this in the intro to our show that this was going to be a big topic for us today. Yeah. So this one first started back in April when Elon Musk said he would take on a 9.2% stake of Twitter and exercise his influence over the company through its board. Then he quickly said he wouldn't be joining the board and then a few days later announced his intention to just buy Twitter. Just buy it. (laughs) For somewhere around, you know, $44 billion. Now, a whole bunch of stuff happened in the following months where Musk then accused Twitter of having a bigger bot problem than initially disclosed. Twitter investors sued Musk on and on and on. Musk seemed to be trying to find a way out of the deal while the rest of us were trying to figure out what an Elon-owned Twitterverse would look like. And then at the end of October, it actually happened. The deal closed. And Twilon, as we've been calling it here at Wired, was a real thing. But of course, it's not like the chaos went away. Quite the opposite. Musk fired half of Twitter's staff. He announced and then held back on plans for a new verification scheme and an increased subscription fee for Twitter Blue. He reinstated some prominent accounts on the platform. He blocked some others. He released a batch of files about content moderation that seemed to amount to a lot of performative transparency. And most recently, he stoked conservative trolls by tweeting something derogatory about people's preferred pronouns. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, by the way, just in mid-December. Yeah. As I mentioned. That's the most terrifying thing about this story is the fact that in like the six or seven or eight days between now and the time that this episode airs, absolutely anything could happen. (laughs) Yeah. Which is always the case in the news, but it feels... Amplified. Yeah. This time around. Everything's happening very, very quickly at Twitter. It's incredibly chaotic. Um, I mean, on the one hand, people of a certain age, like you and I. Or of certain professions. (laughs) Certain professions. We've seen social networks come and go before. Mm -hmm. And we were just talking about this this week. We were talking about Friendster and MySpace and the early blogging platforms. And maybe this is just the beginning of the end for this one. I mean, we will eventually all find another place to gather online to share our most mundane or, in some people's cases, insane thoughts. On the other hand, what's happening at Twitter now and what has happened this year is, I think, emblematic of bigger problems around trust and platforms and social discourse and even democracy. And I I don't think I'm overstating this. Um, This entire saga to me, signals the end to something that was fundamental to the consumer internet in the earliest days of social media, which was really just about connecting. It feels like that's an afterthought now. Mm -hmm. And maybe people are still connecting, but the platforms are really about amplifying. They're about amplifying hateful content, outrage, stoking the outrage. Um, They're not exactly the healthiest places to be. Yeah, I I agree with you. I think that uh, what's happening is really a reckoning with our relationship with social media. You know, I think so many people rely on Twitter for news and for like what is happening now in the world, right? It really feels like it has that pulse that you can't get anywhere else. Like you can't get that on Facebook. You can't get that on Instagram. Mm -hmm. It's a real-time service. And us as journalists probably have a much more 
uh, dependent or codependent relationship on Twitter than other consumers of Twitter would, or even like Twitter power users, right? Uh, just because like our jobs are very tied into Twitter. All of the people that are in our profession are on Twitter. And I think that's kind of unique compared to every other profession. So, you know, for us to sit there and talk about Twitter and how important it is and how much it means, it feels a little bit like navel gazing. But also I do think it's important to note that like the fact that Twitter is so big is part of the reason why it is so toxic. The fact that absolutely everybody on there can post whatever they want is part of the reason that it feels like that, that it feels so exhausting to be there some days, right? There's still wonderful things that happen on Twitter. There's still great connections that happen. But where that that hate and that sort of dogpile effect happens, that's when it starts to feel kind of nasty. And it's because it's so crowded, because it's such a big open platform. So I agree with you. I think that you know people are starting to recognize that and go to smaller communities. We talk a lot about Mastodon. We've talked about it on this show. Mm-hmm. I still don't see some, you know, giant exodus over to Mastodon. Uh, but those are smaller communities. That the the whole idea of the Fediverse in general is that it's all of these little sort of fiefdoms, uh, you know, subreddits, if you will, smaller communities. And I think that when people gather around those smaller communities, they start to see that the conversation is better, right? The conversation is is richer. There is less hate just because it's a smaller group. And yeah, you know, I've been on a mailing list, many mailing lists where, you know, there's a few hundred subscribers and there's one just like asshole who ruins it for everybody and everybody quits and wants to go somewhere else. So that's always going to happen. But I think like the smaller group is probably the future of social media and that the big platform is a problem and we're recognizing it as a problem, let alone the fact that there's one person calling the shots there now. So it sounds like you're in favor of a more decentralized social media existence in 2023. Yeah, I think it would be wonderful, right? Wouldn't mm-hmm, it Wouldn't mm-hmm. it be great if you could just go to a place to hang out and it was only the people you wanted to hang out with mm-hmm. and not all the people talking about all the stuff that you didn't want to pay attention to right now? We're hearing the word decentralized a lot and in particular around Mastodon because of the way that Mastodon works as a social network, that yeah. it's all of these different servers being run and that it yeah. isn't, there's not just one person who's running the entity. I think what I would be looking for is a little more diversified, if not decentralized. Like decentralized might not actually catch on with norm core audiences because of its inability to scale and because some of these alternative services are actually still very clunky to use. Let's oh, be they're all super clunky. But yeah, I think what you're describing <laughs> is if you have a social network for your art space, a social network for your sports space, a social network for your your actual close friends and family, a social network that's for work and for yeah. more performative posts, things like that, that seems like maybe it's a good thing to try at least in 2023. Because this Twitter story, and we said we were going to get to this, mm-hmm. definitely still a part of the conversation in 2023. Yeah. Like there's no, like we're waking up on January 1 and there's going to be something else Elon related, Twilon related. Yeah, for sure. So we should just be ready for that. For sure. Especially because, you know, we have um, uh, elections coming up in this country and everybody's going to be looking at not only Twitter, but all the social networks to see, you know, how they're going to protect uh, against misinformation and bad campaign and outside actors, uh, Russian bots. All of, the, all of mm-hmm. those things are going to continue to be like a big issue on social media platforms and Twitter's not going anywhere. I mean, you know, like we said, absolutely anything can happen, but chances are Twitter's not going anywhere. It's still going to be around by the time we get to the primary season, 
Right? Oh yeah, and it absolutely yes, it's not going anywhere. There was that uh, moment a few weeks ago when we all logged onto Twitter one night and it felt very funereal. Like yeah, like everyone was like, "If I never told you before, I loved you." <laughs> yeah. I, I said it was like the scene of Almost Famous where they thought the plane was going down and yeah. they're literally like, oh, "I love you," and and it's like, "Whoa!" Um, and then the plane like straightens itself out. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I don't think Twitter is going away necessarily in 2023, but it's probably a good opportunity to ex to explore some other places on the web. Mm -hmm. Okay, I asked this before, and now I'm going to come back to it. What do you think was the biggest story of 2022? I think the biggest story, maybe not the biggest story, but the big one that I want to highlight today is uh, the relationship between art and artificial intelligence. Oh, this is a good one. Right? Mm -hmm. So this is the year that we saw the release of a lot of tools that have been in the works and we've watched grow up in public, things like Dolly and Mid Journey, Stable Diffusion, tools where you give it a prompt and it gives you a visual interpretation of that prompt, right? AI art, what we've come to know as AI art. Uh, they're really interesting to me because they have been sort of dictating this change in our relationship with computers. And they've sort of trained a lot of people to learn a lot about uh, how machine learning works. So these tools are built using data sets that they, they basically feed a bunch of data uh, into one of these programs. And it looks at all of it and then says, OK, I think I understand how all of these things relate to each other and how language relates to all of those things. So you can tell me what you want and I'll be able to give it to you and give it to you in a way that's recognizable to you, right? So it started out being kind of weird. You'd get these really weird pictures when you type in things like frog prints, um, you know, or uh, Nicolas Cage as president of the United States. And it was fun and it was interesting, but as the tools, you know, became less discernible as bad AI art and started actually looking like real art, that we would expect to see an artist do, like a human artist do, then that's when the conversation kind of shifted, right? It really forced us to choose how we want to define art. Is art something that is created by a human being? Mm -hmm. Or does an image created by a machine count as art? Right, and if we as human beings have influences in our creative lives, we take information in, we process it, and sometimes that directly appears in some form in anything that we put out, whether we're writers or painters or musicians. Yep. How is that different from a computer processing that load? Yeah. And I would argue that like art is always self-referential. You're talking about like subconscious references, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Not plagiarism or yeah, right. you know, explicit copying, but yeah. Like if you want to be a singer songwriter in, in, in uh, the English language right now, then chances are like Bob Dylan is going to be part of your- Sure. Sound exactly, right? and you, and you would say that someone would say who's who has influenced you, and you you like list the names of artists. Yeah. So that changes when you talk about data sets, and you talk about the fact that like you're feeding art created by actual humans to this machine, and then you're telling the machine, okay, do something like this. And you know there are studies that are coming out now. Researchers have found that. In some cases, some of these AI art programs are like directly copying pieces of the images that they were trained on. So you show it enough images of a tree and then you ask it, show me a tree. And it will sometimes just go in, into its memory and like grab a tree and show that to you. So it actually is plagiarizing 
Even though it doesn't necessarily know the rules around plagiarization, right? It doesn't know what constitutes plagiarism and what doesn't. So, um, you know, it's still evolving in that sense, but it is forcing that conversation. Uh, Artists are really pissed about this. You know, artists know that their work has been fed into a machine and now the machine is being asked to produce work that looks like their work that you used to pay them for, right? Also, you know, I will say that Part of the purpose of art is to force these types of conversations, right? To force people to think critically about the world around them. So I would argue that AI art is art. It's like the highest form of art. It's, you know, conceptual art in a sense. You are trying to make people think about what is art. That is what great art does. I know this is sounding really heady, but that's true, right? So you have to look at things, tools like this, uh, particularly tools like uh, Stable Diffusion and MidJourney as being part of this great experiment where we're all sort of reckoning with how we relate to machines. Mm -hmm. So that's the way that I'm choosing to look at it. I know that there are probably people who create art, visual art for a living who are listening to me talk about this and thinking that I'm full of shit. And that's true. I am full of shit. But I will say (laughs) that I think that the person who sits down at a computer and types in a prompt with the intention of creating an image from one of these systems that forces you to confront the relationship between human-created art and machine-created art is actually an artist. So the person who types that in with that intention is an artist. The person who types something in without that intention, just to get a pretty picture, that person's not an artist. So you see it less as a generative threat and more as a tool. Yeah. And artists use tools. That's what they do. They just sort of use each new technological development to level up and make the thing that they were maybe going to make some version of anyway. Yes. That's really interesting. I do. I think that you we can have a debate about this, you know, and that's this is why I think it's important because next year in 2023, we're going to see tools that are even better. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to learn a lot more about like how the output that we're seeing in public on the Internet is being moderated, both, you know, by machines and by humans. I'm sure that OpenAI, one of the most important and well-known companies in this field, has human moderators uh, who are making sure that like pornography doesn't go out on the internet, like AI-generated pornography doesn't go out on the internet. So, you know, we're going to learn a lot more about like how humans are sort of drawing boundaries around these things. But also we're going to see people using them in even more interesting ways. And that's when something like this becomes interesting. When somebody sits down and they type out a prompt and then you look at the picture and the picture you see makes you think about what was that person thinking? Why did they type those words? That's really weird that they typed those words and this came out. This toothpaste is out of the tube. Yeah, fully. There's no putting these tools back in. Fully. All right, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to dig into more of this year's big tech stories and give some of our predictions. This podcast is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Each episode features insight you won't find anywhere else from the center of the conversation surrounding emerging technologies like AI. Right now on the podcast, you can hear a special episode where Brad Smith lays out Microsoft's vision for a vibrant marketplace driving the new AI economy. To hear more, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Introducing The Jordan Harbinger Show. 
The Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists, to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. All right, we're back. Mike, we already covered Chuilan Musk Mm -hmm. and the weird world of generative AI art. Yep. What's next on the list for you? The crypto crash. Oh, yeah, I knew this was coming. Yep. Everything that happened in cryptocurrency in 2022, I think we can roll together under that banner, the crypto crash, right? We had the NFT market hit a new high and then tumble. Mm -hmm. We had the price of cryptocurrencies tumble. We had the fraud investigation at the FTX Mm -hmm. exchange. Mm -hmm. We had- Well, prior to that, the stable coins collapsed too. The stable coins collapsed? Oh yeah, right. I forgot about- Terra and Luna. Don't forget about those. (laughs) I mean, you know, I think we have to be careful when we like laugh about these things because we are talking about a lot of people losing their livelihoods. Very real money. Yeah. And a lot of people, you know, like not only losing magical internet money, but like losing their home. Right. Their dream just crumbled. But what was their dream built on? It was built on this promise. It was built on this brand new technology. It was built on something that all of the greedy people in the world started exerting force on. So watching it come down and watching it really go through its like first big crisis felt like a moment to step back and think about what role cryptocurrency is going to hold in our future, right? Um, like we talked uh, in our last show when we had Stephen Levy on talking about the the Ledger Stacks wallet, you know, that wallet, it can hold cryptocurrency, but it can also hold things like your driver's license and your passport and other important documents. So like blockchain technology is still really exciting. And- Is it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Just because it has that secure aspect to it. So it's a way of like guaranteeing trust about certain things in your life, like digital assets in your life, everything from, you know, government documents to concert tickets, right? Uh, It makes all of those things more secure than they were in the world of paper and smartphones and emails. So cryptocurrency though, and NFTs and coins and banking and all of that, I feel like it just kind of got raided. Yeah, because I I felt like most of this year I was I was really trying to get a better grasp on the crypto market and NFTs and some actual real life use cases for the blockchain. Mm-hmm. And I just don't feel like I got very far. This funny thing happened where I reached out to a company that makes frames for NFTs oh, and yeah. you know, asked them what what they're making and they sent me a couple of loaners so i had these nfts sitting on my kitchen counter for a few months and um and i remember i was going to write about them and then other deadlines came up and other projects and i just kept putting it off and putting it off and by the time i finally wrote about them you know i think i received them in like january february Mm -hmm. and then by the time i wrote about them in the spring it's like i I think the headline of my article was literally no one cares about my framed nfts yeah people would come over and see them and say what's that weird pulsing jellyfish on your 
count and a frame on your counter. And I'd say, that's an NFT. And then it, actually, that wasn't the NFT. There was a Steph Curry NFT on my counter. But anyway. <laughs> it, um, would, it, would, it would kill the conversation <laughs> when yeah. you told them it was an NFT. Well, someone, someone's, one of my friend's sons took out his phone and, and made a point, took a photo of it and said, there, now I have your NFT. What's to stop me from selling this as an NFT? But that's a whole other story um, about like how we value the original form of art versus, you know, reprints of art. Yeah. Um, Sort of getting back to our first segment conversation, actually. But yeah, the um, the crypto market had a rough year. We have seen dips in the crypto market before. The diehards insist that that's okay, that it's going to bounce back, that it's not going anywhere. Um, They still believe in decentralization. They still, as Stephen Levy said on our podcast a couple weeks ago, see trust as a pejorative term because mm-hmm. they think that the institutions that we have long relied on um, are n- not necessarily the most trustworthy, not how you want to back your money. Isn't it better if you if like you buy into this system instead? I think we'll still see some innovation around it. But wow, is it a rough year for crypto? Yeah. And in particular, the people who trusted Sam Bankman-Fried. Yeah. And, you know, next year, we'll probably continue to see innovation in cryptocurrency companies and in blockchain companies. But I think it will be harder to buy into the hype now that everyone's gone through this rough patch. Yeah. Uh, let's let's move on. Uh, what is your final big story for 2022? Well, it's not final because there's an endless list. <laughs> How much time do we have? Exactly. We have to talk about the metaverse. Oh, goody. Oh, boy. The metaverse. The unfulfilled promises of the metaverse. We can't talk about the metaverse without talking about Meta, which has said it would spend billions of dollars on building out this vision of the metaverse, this 3D virtual reality world that's supposed to represent the next era of computing. Now, the amount that they have said they intend to spend and the actual operating losses differ a little bit. Zuckerberg has said he planned to spend around $10 billion a year on the metaverse. But according to a recent report from The Information, the actual annualized metaverse investment is at nearly $15 billion this year. Um, And we, of course, can see the company's operating losses when they report earnings. And we know that for the past three quarters, at least, it has lost more than $3 billion per quarter. So this is an incredibly expensive bet for meta. It's not just meta either, right? Some companies don't want to necessarily call it the metaverse or say they're a part of that, but companies like Microsoft and Niantic and Snap are also investing millions or billions in the area of virtual reality and augmented reality. The biggest actual news this year was probably Meta's announcement of the MetaQuest Pro headset. Very expensive, futuristic headset that based on my experience, really offered a futuristic vision of computing. Like, it was pretty cool. Stereoscopic uh, vision of computing. Yeah, it was, um, <laughs> what are they called? Pancake lenses? Yeah. Yeah, pancake optics. Like, so they they packed this really advanced display technology into what's a smaller frame, sort of. You're still wearing the thing on your face. Let's, let's put a pin in that. And then the biggest news next year, or maybe the year after, would be if Apple announces some kind of headset. Maybe something else comes from Google. Um, but I, I'm going to declare it now. The metaverse just isn't it. I agree with you. Yeah, I just, I have a hard time with it. And I know that even here at Wired, we've written stories about this future world, this mirror world of computing that's like, you know, everything's going to be like, and I don't want to be closed-minded and shut 
myself off to ideas around what the future of computing could look like just because I can't imagine it now. But I don't think that's it. I just think in its current form, it's it's like a layer of computing. It's not our primary computers. And it is in the case of headsets. It is asking consumers to attach a computer to one of the most intimate parts of our bodies, one that fundamentally is like where most of our senses are housed and just shut ourselves off from the real world. Yeah. And I, I, I told, no pun intended, can't really get my head around it. Yeah, seriously, I, I, I agree with you completely. The fact that uh, this stuff was developed for games says a lot because it's great playing VR games. If you're into VR games, mm -hmm. they're a lot of fun. They are definitely very immersive. Uh, you have to take it off after half an hour, 45 minutes, because otherwise you start to get motion sick. But the idea that Meta has been pushing of meetings in the metaverse and large scale events in the metaverse, those just do not feel fun or uh, they don't. It's it's not something that I would ever wake up and say, wow, I can't wait to go put on my headset and go sit in a meeting. You know, there <laughs> there are certain things that just don't translate into that weird 3D world. And I think, you know, the companies that are bullish on it are trying to push everything into that world. Really, it's just it's a place for games. It's a place for like hanging out, maybe being creative together with other people for a short period of time. But mostly you're you're, you know, shooting zombies. Yeah. Recently, a bunch of Wired folks tried to get together uh, for like a metaverse meetup with our headsets. And I realized that day I was running from point A to B. I had to be here in the office for something. It was in the middle of the day. We don't have a Wi-Fi connection here in the office that allows outside devices on very easily. Yeah. You have to like authenticate for security reasons. Uh, and I just said, I'm sorry, guys, I can't join this thing. Whereas every other device I carry with me allows me to do that now, allows me to have presence and have social presence when I need it. And then log off and see the world with my own two eyes when I need to. Yeah. And th this, I, this idea of these headsets just doesn't, just doesn't do that. And like, I really don't mean to sound like a Luddite, right? Like I admit I was a person, even when the iPhone first came out, I thought, oh, I don't really love the touchscreen. I use a Blackberry. <laughs> I want to type with the tactile keys, right? And eventually like I came around to this new form of input and computing yeah. um, and stuff like that happens all the time. We're resistant to change. I get it. But I just, I just, I don't know. The metaverse, I am very doubtful. I, I mean, I think headsets are going to definitely stick around. But we're, for those specific use cases you talked about. Yeah. Like we're going to keep seeing innovation in headsets. And soon headsets are going to get small enough and light enough and, you know, wireless and powerful enough that you'll be able to do more things with them. But I, I, I still think that like that doesn't matter. Like you're saying, the social awkwardness of having to put this thing on your face in order to interact with people is is like still too much of a hump to get over. And I don't know if we're ever going to be able to make that hump small enough so that people will feel comfortable putting on a headset and then going into like a, you know, social environment and not just like killing zombies. So, I, you know, there's still going to be great game hardware. So be all kinds of great games coming out. But yeah, meetings, <laughs> boardrooms. Horizon workrooms, all of that just feels like hot garbage. It really does. Yeah. It feels like a giant waste of money. Yeah. So back to Zoom for us, I guess. Yeah. Zoom technically is the metaverse, <laughs> right? When yeah, you're I in guess a Zoom meeting, you're technically in the metaverse. I mean, if you, use one, the... of, if you use one of those like 3D filters on your face, you are. No, I mean, even the definition of like, you know, a version of the internet that uh, has presence 
and you're in like a virtual space with somebody. That's what a Zoom room is, right? Sure. So you've been telling me we've been living in the metaverse actually for about three years now. Totally. <laughs> All right. I think we have time for one quick rapid fire round of the future. We're going to make some future predictions. Yes. What's your big prediction for 2023? My big prediction for 2023 is that we are going to have a reckoning with garbage. Like the garbage on Twitter? No, not oh. the garbage on Twitter. <laughs> I'm talking about the garbage uh, out on your curb, right? So this has been coming from one direction for a while, and I think it's going to start coming from another direction next year. And what I mean is you know, for the last few years, companies like Apple and Samsung have been saying, we're going to stop putting chargers in the box. Uh, the boxes themselves are going to get smaller. Uh, we're going to expend less carbon getting your device to you, and it's going to have less garbage when it arrives. But, I mean, there's still a ton of garbage in the world, right? Well, many, many tons of garbage in the world. But we do know that we produce an inordinate amount of trash in this country and in other industrialized countries. Uh, most of the plastic that we produce is not recycled. It ends up in the environment. It breaks down. So we're like starting to come to terms with the fact that we are producing mountains of this stuff. So there, there are companies that are trying to turn garbage into things that can take the place of fossil fuels, right? So there are um, technologies like anaerobic digestion, uh, where they basically take garbage and they put a bunch of microbes in it. So they break it down and turn it into things that can be, that can replace fossil fuels. Uh, there is gasification, uh, which uses garbage to make gas that can be used to generate electricity. There are other technologies that do similar things, basically replacing fossil fuels with these waste to energy fuels. So you can understand they have multiple benefits, right? Gets rid of waste so it doesn't go into landfills. It reduces uh, a country's independence on fossil fuels. And, you know, for a country like the United States, it reduces our dependence on fuels that come from other countries like the Mideast or South America or whatever. So um, I think that the companies that are working in that space are going to have a very big year just because it feels like we're at that moment. I can't say like, oh, this is definitely going to happen. I just have like a hunch that this tipping point has arrived and that now is the time that you're going to see a lot of investment in that world in, in waste to energy. Well, I look forward to um, getting lots of editor's notes from you saying, this is trash <laughs> and meaning it literally. Turn it into energy. <laughs> uh, what do you think is going to happen next year? All right. So I don't mean to be all doom and gloom on this show because I've been like, ah, oh, the crypto market, oh, metaverse, boo. Um, but I do think that in 2023, we're going to see more belt tightening across tech. I'm not an economist, but as we are taping this, the Federal Reserve just raised interest rates again by 50 basis points. Um, some of the more recent consumer price index data has been encouraging, but I don't think we're going to be able to say inflation is over. And a lot of tech companies have been looking at what's happening in the world right now and also reevaluating some of the hiring decisions they made during the pandemic when internet services became our lifelines. And they've been cutting back. And I think we're going to continue to see this happen in 2023. And it's a little bit scary for the rest of us when tech does this, right? Because mm -hmm. if companies like Meta are laying people off or Google is freezing hiring and they're not hurting for cash, then what does it mean for other industries? Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean things are totally dire. It could just mean that companies are narrowing their focus right now. They are whittling down, you know, all the different projects they're working on and figuring out the specific things that they want to build or invent. As our colleague Stephen Levy pointed out in one of his recent newsletters, sometimes it's in a downturn that some of the most interesting new technology can emerge because we 
identify problems and tech sometimes does provide a solution as opposed to having all this tech exist that's in search of a problem. Mm. So maybe we'll see some interesting things emerge from this this time period, this kind of uh, this dip in our collective timeline. But I do think the belt tightening is going to continue into 2023. That's yeah. my prediction. Yeah. A fairly obvious one, I suppose. Right. Like the economy isn't going to recover overnight. Yeah. Yeah. I hate to break it too. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I, I do think, you know, the the um, the time of free money is over, mm-hmm. right? Especially yep. in Silicon Valley. So, yeah, I think you're right. And we'll be keeping an eye on where we see the money going if investors are looking to new areas. Mm-hmm. That might be interesting. Maybe they want to look into uh, waste to energy companies. <laughs> they might. <laughs> W2E. You should put your deck together, Mike. Or maybe they want to uh, build a new headset, a VR headset, because <laughs> we need more of those. <laughs> maybe not. All right. This has been really fun. Uh, let's take a break, and then we'll come back with our end of year recommendations. Hackers and cyber criminals have always held this kind of special fascination. Obviously, I can't tell you too much about what I do. It's a game. Who's the best hacker? And I was like, well, this is child's play. I'm Dina Temple Raston, and on the Click Here podcast, you'll meet them and the people trying to stop them. We're not afraid of the attack. We're afraid of the creativity and the intelligence of the human being behind it. Click Here, stories about the people making and breaking our digital world. AI machines, satellite, engine ignition, click here, and liftoff. Click here, every Tuesday and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Mike, what's your recommendation? A crystal ball (laughs) through which one can see the future. No. Um, So I, I thought... I thought a little bit about this and I decided that um, as uh, we're doing like year end recommendations, right? Sure. Maybe not a thing that you really enjoyed this week, but that made a difference in your year. Okay. So with that note, okay, I would like to say find a good, cheap, regularly run foot race in your town. If you're a runner, if you want to get into running, maybe like your New Year's resolution is going to be to get into running. One of the best motivating tools is to run a race and you can look around for races and often, you know, you see like the big races, like the marathons and they have like a 5K component or like the half marathon and there's a 10K component. Those are, you know, 70, 80 bucks usually to join and they're quite complicated and they're big crowded fields. And then there are these smaller races that take place in most big cities around the country and and around the world. Uh, that are run more regularly. Maybe they happen once a month. Maybe there's like a, a, a monthly 5K that your library puts on or, you know, like a quarterly 10K or like a trail race or something like that that's sponsored by some local nonprofit. Those races are great because they're cheap. You know, they usually cost under $20 to enter and to run. And they're they're very mellow. So they're very low stress events. Uh, they tend to start at more reasonable times, mm-hmm. <laughs> so like 9 a.m. instead of 7.45 or 7.30 a.m. So, um, Lauren, you and I are exercise buddies. Mm-hmm. We do a lot of exercise activities together mm-hmm. uh, on the this weekends. Is, this is when I like to say we record a podcast that none of you will ever hear because we don't actually record it. Yeah. Yeah. So we we run together, we go run. On bike rides, things like that. Yeah, we hash through the news of the day. One thing that we did this year was we did the Lake Merritt race super fun in oakland Mm -hmm. uh 5k super fun 
like 50 people, $10. Mm-hmm. I won amazing. second place. Yes, you did. You because won second there place. were like three women in my <laughs> age group. <laughs> super fun so that's that's my recommendation you know um if you want to get into running or if you are a runner like don't just concentrate on on the big races try to find some small community run event because it's a great motivating tool knowing that like okay in three weeks i have to do this again or in six weeks i have to do this again Mm -hmm. uh it keeps you going and it's a nice little training race if you are planning on doing a longer run at some point that's right great recommendation thanks what's yours My recommendation is something that I've recommended at some point on this show, and I think it was this year. Get into meditation if you can. I recommend checking out Tara Brock. That's B-R-A-C-H. She puts a lot of free meditation exercises and lectures on her podcast. On Apple Podcasts is what I use, but you can find her anywhere. They're free. She accepts donations on her website. She is a really wonderful meditation teacher. She also does some work sometimes with Jack Cornfield, another well-known meditation teacher. I've also been listening to some of his. You can find so many options for meditation. The ones I'm describing are guided in which you hear someone you know, in your ear, in your ear pods, guiding you through breathing exercises and mental exercises. You can also just listen to ones that are, you know, offer ambient noise or mm-hmm. nature sounds and you don't hear someone speaking if that's more soothing to you. You can even if you happen to be a Peloton subscriber, they have great 10 minute meditation exercises in their app. Some people really dig 10% happier as an option for meditation or learning more about meditation. I just recommend getting some headspace back if you can. And not to stress about whether you're doing it right. Your mind is going to wander when you're doing it and that's fine. Just kind of accept it and and get yourself back on track if you can. That's a place where I think guided meditation really helps. I agree. Because like you ask somebody, well, how do you meditate? And they say, well, it's easy. You just sit there and you think about nothing. Yeah, but that's not it. That's not like how our brains work, especially our Twitter-addled brains. So a guided meditation is going to, you know, sort of fill your head with imagery and give you sort of prompts that are structured to cool you down and and bring you into that headspace instead of just trying to force it. Yeah, sometimes they will guide you through a body scan, although it was really funny. One of my friends the other night said, if I get told to do a body scan one more time, yeah. <laughs> it's like over-reliance on that, I suppose. Yeah. But it really puts you in your body. There are all kinds of ways of um, just finding a little more presence, giving yourself some headspace, uh, taking a break from the noise and taking a break from social media. Very important. Yeah, I feel like we should take a break from this uh from this 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 podcast yeah we're gonna take a little holiday break <laughs> and uh we'll be back in the new year with new stuff that's right we and... have ces the first week of january oh boy ces yeah so you're gonna be podcasting from a hotel room in las vegas yes our first show of the year will probably be the crew at wired who's at ces talking about ces it's gonna be pretty exciting that's all i know right now all right <laughs> tbd well um mike thanks so much for being an amazing co-host all year Thank you for being an amazing co-host all year. I just saw in the script that you wrote, I quit. (laughs) (laughs) I don't quit. Please don't quit. Please, please don't quit. Absolutely not. Okay, good. All right. Um, My prediction is that Mike sticks around for the entirety of 2023. Um, 
Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. We're still there. Just check the show notes. Our producer is the excellent Boone Ashworth, who we're extremely grateful for. We'll be back next week, the first week of January, with that new episode that Mike mentioned. Until then, have a good rest of your year and a happy holiday season. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you. And how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. From PR.